This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne-WY-Giving. So we're back in Matthew. We're back in Matthew. We took our break last week and we almost stayed in 1 Samuel because there's some, there's some pretty poignant stuff that's in there, or some pretty pointed stuff, I, I should say. Uh, and we may come back to that again another day, but it's, uh, it's fitting, I think, that we finish what we began. And let's go back to Matthew chapter 10 as we continue in our red letter studies. Now let's pick it up at verse 31. So this, we'll carry this through to the end, at least, uh, to verse 42. Lord willing, words of Christ where he says, Fear ye not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Whosoever, therefore, shall confess me before men. Let's actually start with that verse. Whosoever, therefore, shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. It's a very simple contract. It's a very simple contract. If we confess Christ and we mean it, Christ will confess us. But if we, if we choke up, if we're ashamed, if we're fearful, if we just, for whatever reason, decide that we're not going to confess Him, we're put on the spot, but you know, there's that, that carnal shame or whatever that comes up, which really, that needs to be put to death as soon as possible in the life of a believer. What do we have to be ashamed of? You know what? Really, what do we have to be ashamed of as, as Christians? We had all of the reasons for our shame removed. They're the ones that are supposed to be ashamed. Now, this isn't a superiority complex talking here. This isn't a supremacy complex. Nothing of the sort. This is not coming from pride, okay? This is coming from looking at it realistically. Many years ago, I had a friend. He was a former Muslim. He converted to Christianity. Uh, he's from Africa, actually. He was raised largely in New York, I believe. But very intelligent man. He was a software developer. And he and I would talk a lot. I used to work for him. And we would talk a lot about, um, somewhat about theology, we'd talk a lot about Bible just in general. But I used to work with this, with this brother, and he was a good brother, and we talked about a lot of things. And we talked about what was mainstream and what was not. And I was approaching it from, I was approaching the conversation from the side of, well, Christianity's not mainstream, it's never really been mainstream because we've always been in the minority and, you know, in terms of, you know, the whole world population and the Bible says as much but then he put a different spin on that and it really got my attention I wasn't I wasn't I haven't thought of this in a while where he said no you know what the minority position the position of the believer being right with God that's mainstream and the whole rest of the world is outside of the mainstream where God is concerned and I thought that that was actually a really good way of looking at it because that takes us, psychologically, that takes us away from a position of weakness. It takes us outside of that position of weakness of, oh, well, we're not mainstream, and so people won't accept it. Hey, forget that. You accepted it, didn't you? You know, to whatever extent, wherever you are in, wherever you are in your relationship with God, to whatever extent you have been made conformable to His Son, okay, you are mainstream. 
You're in the mainstream where God is concerned. It's just not the mainstream where Babylon is concerned, where the world is concerned, where the flesh and the devil are concerned. So back to the words of Christ. He says, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, I will confess him. I will confess also. Him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men. And it doesn't matter what the reason is. It doesn't matter what the reason is. You see, Christians are not Muslims. Christians are not Hindus. Christians are not Buddhists. Christians are not any other group at all. Christians are Christians. And one of the things that is expected of a Christian is, and we've talked about this in the past, absolute honesty. Even where a life is at stake. Even where a tremendous loss is at risk. You know what I'm saying? We're expected to be honest. You see, Peter denied Christ. And, and Christ had foretold it. He knew the track that Peter was on. And he, and he, he, saw, he saw where that was going to go to. And Peter fulfilled it, and Peter denied Christ. And as soon as he denied Christ, I think he denied him three times, all in the same conversation, the same exchange. Okay? And so he denied Christ, and then what did Peter do? He went out, the Bible said, he went out and he wept bitterly. It's never a good thing to deny Christ. It might save you your skin, but don't you know there's a martyr's crown that can be won? I don't talk a whole lot about this sort of thing. Doesn't happen a whole lot around in, in our society. Not too many Americans get martyred in America. You know what I'm saying? But it's still something to consider because there are religions that require you to um, be loyal and trustworthy and faithful and, stand, and stick to your gun, so to speak, unless your life is at stake, and then it's okay to lie. You know what I'm saying? There are some religions that permit lying under certain circumstances. Not so with Christianity. Not so when, when you're a child of God, you're expected to be absolutely honest. No exceptions. Period. End of story. Being a dishonest person for any reason is never an option on the straight way. It isn't. And it never will be. And you, you might make the argument, well, what about Abraham back there in the Old Testament? He told a lie about his wife. To, well, Abraham wasn't really a saved person in the same sense that the New Testament saint is. You know what I'm saying? Abraham was an Old Testament saint. Those guys did not have converted hearts because Jesus had not yet died. And it was only the blood of Jesus that was able to affect a change of heart in us. So yes, they had other things. They had animal sacrifices and, and different things that God had instituted that were stopgap measures until the time of Christ. But here, now, and for the last 2,000 years, we are admonished over and over in Scripture to walk honestly as in the day. To forsake a lying tongue. Because even in the Old Testament, I believe it's in Proverbs, we're told that, you know, what did he say? Five things, seven things doth the Lord hate. One of them is a lying tongue. And when you really think about it, and okay, with the carnal mind, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, what's the big deal? I'm just saying something that isn't true. It's not like I'm killing someone. Right? That's a carnal argument. That's a, an argument right from the flesh. It's not like I'm robbing a bank. It's not like I'm shooting a baby. It's not like I'm slapping a nun. Well, 
who would do that anyway? I don't understand. But some people are weird. You never know. But so, you know, what's the big deal? And that's that's the flesh's inclination towards trying to set up sins in a hierarchy of badness. You know, and as long as we're not doing really bad sins, then we're doing okay. That is not the right way to think. And that is not the way our God thinks. And he counts, yes, there are some differences in severity, but the bottom line for all of them is ultimately the same. And so honesty is a rock-solid requirement. And one of the reasons for that is, can you trust anybody who lies about anything? No. Not really. Because if they'll lie about one thing, then under the right provocation, they'll lie about absolutely anything. And maybe they have their own standards and certain lines that they would never cross, but how can the rest of the world know that? When you have people that are dishonest, you have a society that is dishonest. And when you have a society that is dishonest, you have crookedness and corruption and you have sins across the board and you can't tell up from down, left from right. Just look at our politics. Really. And, and I'll throw stones at every political party that's out there. Because wherever there's dishonesty, there's corruption. Wherever there's greed, there's corruption. Wherever there's dishonesty, you'll find greed. You'll find it. You'll find all of those interrelated, interconnected, and self-perpetuating. Absolute honesty. So when, we're, so when we've got, when the heat is on, and we've got a choice to either confess Christ, somebody backs you into a corner or asks you point blank, hey, do you believe in God? Are you a Christian? Do you go to church? What, what, where are you at on that? And you can tell they're not asking because they're interested in being one of us. They're, they're asking because they're looking for something to find fault about. They're looking for a fight. And there are people that are like that. They have hearts filled with contention. They have never known the way of peace. They just, they're not happy unless they're fighting with someone, verbally, physically, or otherwise. Well, it'd be one of the two. Well, when the heat's on and you're put on the spot, will you confess Christ? Or you chicken and say, ah, you know what? Sinners aren't stupid. Neither are Christians, but sinners aren't stupid. They can tell when a real believer is ashamed and is dodging. They can tell. They can tell. Most people can. So why not just confess Christ no matter what? And let come what may. How many of you have ever, let me ask this question. How many of you have ever heard of a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs? I got two hands. Okay. Third, you heard of it too, brother? Okay. You ever read it? It's kind of frightening, isn't it? Some of the things that early believers and medieval believers endured, especially around the time of the Reformation. Fox's Book of Martyrs is nonfiction, it's a, it's a historical record of the first, I don't know how many, uh, thousand plus, maybe 15, 1600 years, 1700 years of Christianity and of specific people that were martyred for their faith. I want to say that the first one recorded was right out of the Bible, Stephen Martyr, but I don't know if he's actually in that book because he's already recorded in the Bible. But there have been many that have endured horrific persecutions, some not so horrific, some just bland and passive, but I mean, where not only their own lives, but the lives of family were on the line. 
Well, there's something to, something to know. And it's actually, it's a book I would encourage you to have a look at if you, ever, if you ever get the chance. It's out there on the market. You can find it on Amazon or wherever. You could probably find it up in Barnes & Noble. And I don't think it costs too awful much. They have them in paperback. They have them in hardcover. But some of the earliest Christians, some of the first disciples, some of the first members of the body of Christ, so zealous for the faith, so anchored in Christ that when, when persecutions came, many of them leapt. They leapt at the chance to be martyred in the fires. Think about that. Where has that zeal gone in our modern churches? Where has that zeal gone? Where has that gone in the believers of today? So rooted and grounded, so anchored in Jesus. I love that song. We sing it in our hymnals. I've anchored in Jesus. The storms of life I'll brave. So a lot of Christians won't even brave the storms of life, let alone the, you know, the, uh, the threat of death. And, and again, the threat of death, that's something I've never faced. So I'm not going to throw too many rocks because I haven't been there. I haven't even yet resisted unto blood. I've resisted unto some other pretty bad things, but I haven't resisted unto blood yet. I haven't had to. Lord willing, I never will. We'll see what happens. God give me the grace to handle it the right way if it ever does. We should all pray the same way. We're not looking for a martyr's crown, but man, what a zeal to have. What a zeal to have to be so confident, so established in faith, so rooted and grounded in Christ that, you know, they line us up against the wall one day, and it could happen. It happened in Germany. It's happened in many, many places. It happened in Russia. The 20th century, the bloodiest century in human history, usually for ideological causes, but Christians always seem to get singled out in those. No, Hitler was not a Christian, not within a trillion miles. He was many, he was many things, but he was never that. Anyhow, all of this out of these first two verses. When the heat comes down, if it ever does, don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of your faith in Jesus. And, well, how do I know if I'll be ashamed or not? i tell you what you do, okay? You develop your walk with God. And you grow it. And you draw so close to God that there's no way you would be ashamed. Would you be ashamed of your own father, assuming he was a good father? Well, no, probably not. Okay, so why be ashamed of Jesus? Why be ashamed of our Heavenly Father? Why be ashamed at all? You make sure your relationship with God is so well-founded that you can answer like one of those martyrs did. Reverend DeRyder, was it Polycarp? Eighty and six years? He was taken by the Romans and he was thrown into the arena. I wasn't planning on talking about this, but it always works out this way. He was tossed into the arena to be killed by lions or whatever wild animals that they had that particular day. That was a very common occurrence in anti-Christian Rome uh, back in the, in the early, I believe, in the first century of the church. Polycarp, I think, was one of what is popularly called the Apostolic Fathers. He was one of the disciples that was taught by the apostles themselves. And he was an old man when he was taken into custody and thrown into the ring. And they put him forth out there before, I want to say Caesar, but before whatever magistrates were there on that particular occasion. And they said, if you deny Christ, we'll spare your life. And he said, I'm not going to do it. And they asked him three times. They asked him three times, deny him and we'll let you go. 
And he stood there and said, Eighty and six years have I served him. And he has never done me wrong. I've got to paraphrase it at this point. He said, well, he's never denied me or he's never, he's never done me wrong in any way. How could I then deny him? I will not. I am a Christian. And so they turned the animals loose on him and then that was it. He got his ticket punched and he was home. You see, you have to take the long look. This life ends. We say that a lot. What comes after is all that matters. And so, is anything worth... Well, but, but I'll die, but I'll die. Guess what? You're going to die anyway, right? Everybody does. So what if it earns you another five years of life or even 20 years of life? You think you're going to be happy in those 20? If you deny the Lord, you'll be guilty. You'll be like Peter, weeping bitterly, feeling miserable. And yes, God can forgive and restore and all of that. I'm not saying it's like tantamount to becoming a reprobate, okay? But let's just take words, let's take Christ's words to heart. Whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Now let's move on. He says next, think not that I'm come to send peace on the earth, or peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. And then he goes right into an, an, an adjoining or an adjacent topic. The two are they go hand in hand. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now let's stop right there. Okay, so this brings in the subject of division and family. Division and family. And right off the bat, it might cause some confusion because we read of Jesus being called the Prince of Peace. He was prophesied of way back in Isaiah. The Prince of Peace. Well, if Jesus is the Prince of Peace, why is He saying here that He isn't come to send peace on earth, but a sword, rather? That sounds like the opposite of the Prince of Peace. That sounds like the Prince of War. That sounds like the prince of, of conflict. Well, hold on. It's not that Christ is coming in to deliberately cause trouble. That's not His character. But trouble is the natural result of what happens when some people accept Him into their heart and others that are close don't. When Christ is accepted by some but not all, then a division naturally occurs, doesn't it? Because there's a difference between the Christian and the sinner. There's a difference. And that's something that the world and the world's worldly churches have really tried to do away with. As the church tries hard to be as much like the world as it can so that they're not as, so they're not, they don't seem so weird and peculiar to the world. That's a losing fight. Just be a Christian and don't worry about what the world thinks. Just be a Christian and don't worry about how peculiar we are. We're supposed to be a peculiar people. The Bible even says we're supposed to be a peculiar people. And so as you let Christ grow in your life, or you let your relationship as you grow in the grace and the knowledge of God. And I've got a feeling that that's going to get stepped up here in the months to come. You're part of a church body. And the responsibility of that church's leadership is to instruct you in the way in which we should go. And some of that is going to touch really, really close to home. And some of that is going to touch on things in your life that are dear to you. 
Don't be afraid. Just let the Spirit of God with the Word of God shape your life. Well, you got me nervous now. Don't be nervous. We're not negative about this. We're positive. We're positive. Because if you go with it, your life will be better. If you go with it, that's one less, that's one less foothold that Babylon has in your life. And trust me, you don't want any footholds in, in your life. You don't want Babylon having any foothold in your life. Because whatever they have in you, they can try to use to pull you back in. And if you wanted to be part of that, why accept Christ in the first place? But we wanted out of that, didn't we? We wanted out of the sin. We wanted out of the consequences of those sins. We wanted out of being like them and, try, and aspiring to be like them and chasing after the things that they were all about. We wanted something better. We wanted something clean. We wanted something righteous. And so we came to Jesus. Amen? So, buckle up. This is good stuff. He says, I come to set a man at variance against his father, the daughter against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. So what's he saying there? When one person in a family gets saved and the other three people or four people don't, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be conflict. There really will be. And it's not because the Christian's trying to pick a fight, although sometimes, unfortunately, the Christian does, because they're trying to get the other people in the family saved. That's a natural thing to want to do. I mean, it's, a, it's terrible to have one person right with God and nobody else in that family is. Because then the person who's right with God is very keenly aware of where the rest of the people he loves most in his life are on their way to. And of course he doesn't want them to go there. And so children get saved before their parents, they witness to their, their parents, and it often doesn't go well. Sometimes it does, but usually it does not. Parents get saved, and sometimes the kids don't want to come along into the faith. But if parents have their act together and they do it right, then they can just bring all their children right along with them into the, into the, into the presence of God, into the, into the church of God. And that's, that's ideal. That's what, that's what is wanted. What's God want, it's what God wants because when the whole family is serving God, then you've got peace. Then you've got peace. And Jesus can be the Prince of Peace in everybody's heart in there. So there's not conflict necessarily. There's still some conflicts because brothers and sisters and brothers and brothers and sisters and sisters are always fighting with each other, aren't they? It's always it's what they do, you know, to a greater or lesser extent. I fought with my brother. When everybody in the family's right with God, then there's peace. Otherwise, there's going to be division. There's going to be division. Okay, well then, what, what should the believer do then? Should the believer back down from their faith so there can be harmony in the house again? No. No. Remember what Jesus did, just said. If you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the Father. If you deny me before men, then I'll deny you before the Father. So no, we don't back up and we don't back down just because the other people in the family don't want to serve God. There's a lot of husbands that make the wrong call there when their wife doesn't want to come with them into the faith. Well, then now I'm part of a divided marriage. Okay, well, that's okay. That's okay. Not going to win your wife. A saved husband's not going to win an unsaved wife by caving in and backing down. What are you, beta? Come on. Be a leader. Be an example. Well, she's fighting me. Let her fight. She's not going to kill you, probably. She can't eat you. Cannibalism's illegal, right? 
Same thing with, with wives that get saved and the husband doesn't follow him into the faith. Paul tells us how to handle that. You stick to your guns. Be what you're supposed to be as either a husband or a wife, depending on your gender. You know what I'm saying there. That really doesn't require much clarification. And then if you do it right, it'll be a testimony to the, pers- to the person you're married to. And it may very well lead them in. There have been a lot of sinner husbands led into the faith by meek Godly, humble, submissive wives. And those are not curse words. They really aren't. They are virtues of incredible strength. They really are. Some preachers were teaching. All right. And there have been a lot of sinner wives that have been won to the faith by patient, strong, Leaders, husbands who weren't going to back down. I don't mean tyrants. I just mean men that were going to do right whether wifey came along or not. Because that speaks to them. It speaks to them. You're talking about toxic masculinity, preacher, don't you know? That's toxic masculinity. No. It's just being a man. It's just being a leader. It doesn't mean you're a jerk. It doesn't mean you come home and slap the wife around and say, well, that's Christian discipline. No, that's criminal assault. (laughs) Come on now. Just be a leader. Be the example. Show her Christ. It's not going to be easy, but it can be done. And it may very well work out. So it's happened many times. He said, a man's foe shall be they of his own household. But then he goes on to say, and we already read this, so we can go through it quickly. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Well, that tells us where our priorities need to be in terms of love. So he doesn't say, don't love mom and dad. And he doesn't say, don't love your kids. He's just saying, love Jesus more. Love Jesus more. And when you love Jesus more than anybody else, then all the other loves of your life will fall into the right order and into the right perspective. And then you don't make, you don't make uh, your, any of your family members an idol. You don't make a girlfriend or a boyfriend into an idol because you love Jesus more than anybody else and it's Jesus you're going to follow. And if somebody wants to come along with you, that's great. It's going to be because they're loving Jesus too. Amen? Moving on. Verse 38, And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my, loseth his life for my sake shall find it. This is your Christian responsibility. This is your Christian responsibility. He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. There's no such thing as responsibility-free Christianity. If we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to have to bear our cross. Now, that cross is manifest in a lot of different ways. With some people, it's one thing. With other people, it's another thing. Some people, their burden to bear is an unsaved spouse. Some people, their burden to bear is a medical condition that just for whatever reason is not healing and is not going to heal. For other people, it may be something else completely. It may be something else entirely different. But whatever your cross is, Jesus said, pick it up and take it. Pick it up and carry it. Carry your responsibility. Carry your burden. 
Carry your burden. It'll give your life some meaning. It'll give it some dignity. And it'll show some other people that you're serious. It'll show some other people that there's, that there's some meaning to what you're doing. He that receiveth you, receiveth me. And he that receiveth me, receiveth him that sent me. Well, who's that? That's God the Father. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. What in the world is he talking about here? Whatsoever you do, there's a reward attached to it if it is a good thing. Whatsoever you do, there's a reward attached to it. But notice there's, he hints at degrees of it here. Now, we don't do anything in our society in the name of a prophet. That's a little strange to us. It's just never been part of our culture, nor of a righteous man or in, a, or, or, um, in the name of a disciple. Now, some people do things in the name of a righteous person if there's a just cause. If there's a, uh, a just cause that they want to stand for, some injustice that they're trying to correct, you know, they'll put his picture up on a sign or whatever, uh, and, they'll, and they'll stand for it, or they'll pick it, or they'll demonstrate in the name of that. So you, you could kind of shoehorn that into this. There's a relationship there. But what he's saying is, whatever you do, you'll be rewarded for it. So why not do everything that we do in the name of our Lord. And that doesn't mean that you walk around saying that. I am picking up this pencil in the name of the Lord. I am going to go to work now in the name of the Lord. And you sit down at your desk. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, I now commit to my work. Although it wouldn't be bad, you'd just look really weird. And people would wonder what you're on about. Okay, But whatever we do in life as believers, we ought to be doing in the name of Jesus. Isn't that right? Because it is by Jesus that, that we're even saved. It's by Jesus we're born again, we're made new by the Spirit of God, raised up in newness of life, forgiven of all our past sins, and made into children of God. So whatever we do, and we'll close with this, let everything we do, brothers and sisters, be in the name of Jesus. Let us confess Him before men, stand our ground in the face of detractors, not let anyone make us ashamed of the faith or of any of the particulars of the faith that we believe in. Amen? Let us stand our ground. Let us not be shaken even in the midst of a divided family if we're facing that sort of thing. If you're not, praise the Lord. Really, praise the Lord. It's good to have godly harmony in the home. I've lived it. I've seen it. It's a wonderful thing. And then, whatsoever we do, we take up our cross, we follow after the Lord, and we do everything in His name. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.